Thanks for listening to the triumphant return of Batman v. Batuman, your monthly podcast for comic book news, history, and reviews. I've taken a bit of a lengthy hiatus, in part because I was really falling behind on my comic book reading, and so I could reformat the show in a way that worked out better for me as I get busier and have trouble reading enough to do a week-to-week show. So now I'm going to do it month-to-month, which gives me more time to read stuff and review it properly, and also, frankly, gives me more time to savor what I'm reading. And is not that savoriness the very reason why we read our comics? I say yes. So, for those of you listening for the first time, welcome. For those of you rejoining me after a long hiatus, welcome back. And to all of you, thanks for listening. Here we go. Since my last episode, The Flash has gone through two quite enjoyable story arcs. The first was Speed of Darkness, a semi-magical alternate reality situation that kind of reminded me of Jeff Johns-era Flash stuff. To put it in a spoiler-free context, the Flash and Kid Flash have to work together with The Shade, a former Flash foe who transports the Flashes to a dark shadow plane where The Shade used to access his powers. The now uncontrolled shadows have kidnapped two women important to the Flashes and Shade, so our superhero and his pals have to race against the titular Speed of Darkness to rescue them. The next arc is called Rogues Reloaded, and features the return of the famous Flash Rogues, a team of his enemies that often work together to try to outmaneuver the Flash. I'm not going to list all the rogues because you should know who they are, at least from the Flash TV show, but if you haven't seen the Flash TV show, I'm still not going to list them. You should go watch the Flash TV show. It's on Netflix. You have no excuse. Anyway. This time, they managed to outthink Barry Allen by splitting up and committing crimes all over the city. The Flash scrambles to stop them while trying to figure out their ultimate plan. Both arcs were pretty fun and sharply written. The series has been moving along faster since the initial and somewhat overly long introductory story arc of this Flash run. And in about a month, The Flash and Batman are going to have four crossover issues that further address the events of DC Rebirth the single-issue story written by Jeff Johns that kicked off this current DC era. Detective Comics, featuring Batman and a team of his allies that protect Gotham, including Batwoman, Spoiler, Orphan, and longtime foe Clayface, continues to impress. The story arc I discussed last time, The Victim Syndicate, ended sort of unsatisfactorily, but the following arc was quite good and served to set up a solo Batwoman series that kicked off last week. While the current Batman run is pretty good, Detective Comics has been a tremendous look at the Bat in a broader context, as a mentor, guardian, and big brother to the budding vigilantes helping him patrol Gotham. I haven't been reading DC Rebirth's Supergirl series, but I watched the enjoyable first season of the show on Netflix and decided to pick up the first issue of a new miniseries called Supergirl, Being Super, written by Mariko Tamaki and drawn by Joelle Jones. The series is planned to be four issues long, with the first two issues currently available. I really dug the first issue. It was a small-scale, engaging story about a teenage Supergirl trying to juggle friends, high school, and her increasing powers without going nuts. The writing is well-paced and relatable, so if you're in the market for an accessible entry point to a newly prioritized DC character, check out Supergirl being super. Side note, the Supergirl show is actually pretty good. The first season ended up being almost as good as The Flash, and features my all-time favorite DC character in a supporting role. The first couple of episodes were a bit bland, but the show takes off after that. Pun somewhat intended. Anyway, my favorite Rebirth series, Green Arrow, continues to impress. Oliver Queen helped stop a major drug trafficking operation and returned to Seattle to rest. 
But in a politically timely story arc, Seattle gets turned upside down as a Donald Trump-esque mayoral candidate starts riling up the population against the Green Arrow, environmentalism, unions, and all things dear to Oliver Queen's socialist heart. To make matters worse, a rogue archer starts assassinating people around the city with arrows that look like Oliver Queen's. The Green Arrow starts hunting the criminal, giving him a bad name, and discovers one of his most powerful foes behind the campaign to ruin his reputation. My favorite part of this story arc was the inclusion of a parody of Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson, who was an ultra-conservative and endorsed the Trumpish mayoral candidate. The guy who writes Green Arrow lived in Wisconsin for a long time, so it makes sense that a Packers fan would have a bone to pick with an NFC rival. And as a Wisconsin-based podcast, I applaud that move. The only other thing I've been reading that I want to mention is Sandman by Neil Gaiman. It is immensely interesting. If you haven't read it, and especially if you haven't read many comics, pick up the series as soon as possible. Elaborate, yet accessible. It's a surreal and metaphysical journey through the worlds of dream, hell, reality, space, nothingness, and time. There are 75 issues and multiple storylines throughout, with some issues containing side stories that have little to no connection to the main story, which follows the character Dream, aka Morpheus, aka the Sandman, a manifestation of Dream in a humanoid form that is one of the endless. Seven siblings including Dream, Destiny, Death, Destruction, Despair, Delirium, and Desire. The series begins with Dream escaping a long imprisonment and trying to rebuild the world of dreaming that decayed in his absence. The Sandman interacts with all sorts of interesting people like Lucifer, William Shakespeare, John Constantine, and John Constantine's also occult-inclined ancestor Joanna Constantine. He also has to fight, outwit, and make deals with demons, mythological figures, and some pretty oddball beings that he actually created prior to his imprisonment that have now gone rogue. I realize everything I just said sounds goofy as hell if you aren't familiar with the series, but if you have an appreciation for literature, uh, fantasy, horror, or just plain old good writing, check out the series. There's something absorbing about the saga, and Neil Gaiman consistently outdoes himself throughout. I still have about a dozen issues left to go before I finish the story, so I'm sure a lot more is going to happen, but even up to this point, I would probably need to spend half an hour talking about the series to do it any justice, so all I'll say for now is, please read it. Ugh, anyway, there's some other stuff I've read and am reading, but I'll save it for next month's episode. For now, I'll leave the DC aside and jump into my favorite and only segment, my uninformed Marvel review. I don't know too much about Marvel outside of the TV shows and movies and 16 episodes of the show prior to this one. So I'll continue to educate myself by reading and reviewing one Marvel story every episode. This week I read Madrox, M-A-D-R-O-X, by Peter David with art by Pablo Raimondi. This is a five-issue miniseries published in 2004 and 2005. Madrox is the story of... Jamie Madrox, the multiple man, a mutant with the ability to duplicate himself. The story starts off with him stumbling around New York, bleeding from his chest. He shoves a tourist out of the door of a taxi and gets in, asking the driver to take him to Mutant Town. The driver notices that Madrox is bleeding and offers to take him to a hospital instead, but Madrox insists on going to Mutant Town, telling the driver one of them will be dead depending on the destination so why not collect a fare instead of moving on up to the big taxi in the sky? Subtle. Mutant Town, unlike Chinatown or Little Italy, doesn't get many tourists. I can see why, because the first mutant we see there is Rain Sinclair, 
a mutant with the ability to go full werewolf at will. Luckily, she's a friend of Jamie Madrox and was on a government strike force of mutants with him called X-Factor. X-Factor was also a series of these characters when they were on the aforementioned government force. She walks up to Jamie's office in Mutant Town, XXX Investigators, and opens the door to find a dead Madrox. Or so it seems. Madrox is passed out drunk. Rain finds out as she's cradling what she thought was her dead friend, so she drops him. The impact triggers Madrox's mutation, and a duplicate, same clothes and all, pops out of him. He then resorbs the duplicate by pulling it into himself. It turns out that he didn't actually get drunk either, but a duplicate he'd created the night before went out, got wasted, and when Madrox resorbed that duplicate, he picked up the duplicate's blasted mental synapses. Rain makes him some coffee and asks why he decided to open a detective agency. Madrox hits her with the Sherlock Holmes routine, describing her last few hours based on the mud on her shoes and stains on her clothes. She's impressed, but he really just has duplicates out and about who transfer their experiences to him when they get resorbed. One duplicate returns just then. Not just any duplicate, but one who shaved his head and dressed up like a Buddhist monk. Madrox sends Rain out to a bar across the street while he resorbs the monk duplicate. The bar is called the Power Plant, not to be confused with the fine Milwaukee drinking and stand-up comedy institution Frank's Power Plant. It's a mutant bar, and Rain finds another friend from her X-Force days named Guido Carosella, who is basically just a really big, strong dude. He works for Madrox now, as muscle. Guido explains the Buddhist monk Madrox. Apparently, before opening a detective agency, Jamie Madrox sent out a bunch of duplicates to experience different lifestyles and learn about the world, then resorbed them to gain their knowledge. Just then, the bleeding Madrox from the beginning of the story stumbles into the bar. It turns out he was a duplicate, so Guido and Rain call Madrox down to the bar to resorb the duplicate to find out who tried to kill him. But Madrox freaks out. He's resorbed dying duplicates before, and while their wounds and injuries don't transfer, the pain does. As does the wrenching feeling of their death. Madrox doesn't want to do it, but Rain insists, in case the killer plans to kill again. Madrox resorbs the dying duplicate, catches a few flashes of memory, and passes out. When he comes to, he tells Rain and Guido that the duplicate either didn't see the killer's face, or blocked it out due to the trauma of getting stabbed. From the few memories he got, Madrox saw a woman, a newspaper, and Chicago. He creates a duplicate to stay in New York as bait, tells his friends to be safe, and heads to Chicago. Right after Madrox gets there, he witnesses some mafia henchmen roughing up a reporter. Madrox recognizes the journalist and steps in. One of the thugs punches Madrox and creates a duplicate. A couple of more confused punches yield the same result, and the duplicates turn the tide. The journalist isn't particularly grateful though, because he senses that Madrox wants a favor. I guess more than senses, because Madrox blackmails him with the knowledge that the journalist is a mind-reading mutant. Stringer, the journalist, agrees to host Madrox and help him look through his newspaper's archives. Back in New York, the guy who stabbed the Madrox duplicate turns out to be a hired killer and is ordered to try to kill Madrox again, which means that whoever wants him dead knows that the real Madrox is alive. Meanwhile, over at Madrox's PI office in Mutant Town, Madrox's decoy duplicate is fixing up the office with Rain and Guido. A mutant woman named Carol Campbell shows up and wants to hire Madrox to follow her husband. The catch is, her husband is also a mutant, is quadriplegic, and cheating on her telepathically via astral projection. 
On this very lovely note, we're back with Madrox in Chicago, where he and Stringer are sifting through a newspaper archive to look for clues from Madrox's dead duplicate's memory. One such clue turns up in the form of a photograph of Sheila DeSoto, the fiancé of a corrupt businessman. Stringer warns Madrox to stay away, especially because of her fiancé, is possibly responsible for having the duplicate stabbed. So of course Madrox goes right after her, using a bunch of his duplicates to break into Sheila DeSoto's estate. He finds DeSoto as she's climbing out of a swimming pool, and she is thrilled to see him. They make out next to the pool, while back in New York, Madrox's decoy duplicate serves his purpose and takes a bullet from the hitman who stabbed the Chicago duplicate. Luckily, the bullet only grazes him. Unluckily, the real Madrox and the fiancé of the businessman with ties to the mob get interrupted by that very same mob-connected businessman, Eddie Vance. His goons lock Madrox up in a broom closet while their boss, Eddie Vance, decides how to kill Madrox. Meanwhile, in Mutant Town, New York, Guido and Rain are trying to catch the hitman targeting Madrox. Meanwhile, Madrox uses skills he picked up from a duplicate who had learned magic tricks to escape his bonds. He creates a duplicate on the other side of the locked closet door to help him out, but this duplicate is stubbornly philosophical, and the two of them end up debating the meaning of life and whether it is worth it to try to escape. Eddie Vance's henchmen hear them talking and try to strangle the duplicate, but Madrox gets out of the broom closet and fights. Madrox accidentally kills one of the guards, and in a daze, resorbs his duplicate. He finds Eddie Vance and Sheila, eavesdropping in to hear Eddie say something about dealing with the mutant problem. Never a good sign. A henchman gets the drop on Madrox and ushers him into Vance's office. To Madrox's horror, he finds one of his duplicates in the office, working with Vance. This duplicate has a strong sense of self-preservation. They start arguing and let slip that Madrox had been intimate with Sheila DeSoto, Vance's fiancé. Vance, enraged, hands the duplicate a gun and orders him to kill Madrox. Luckily for Madrox, if he tries really hard and believes in himself, he can resorb a duplicate without touching it. He resorbs the duplicate and uses the distraction as a chance to escape, hurling himself through a window. He grabs Sheila as he falls, and the impact creates a bunch of duplicates that soften their fall. They get to safety and Madrox questions Sheila about the duplicate working for Eddie Vance, and also why she kissed Madrox when they met. It turns out that the Madrox she knew and loved was the one who was stabbed at the beginning of this story. She had no idea about Madrox's duplication ability, and assumed Eddie had had him killed. But not just out of jealousy. Apparently, Eddie Vance and his organized crime friends are in a gang war with a mysterious mutant. Perhaps he suspected the duplicate of having dalliances with his fiancée of being that mutant. Madrox leaves Sheila somewhere safe and arranges a meeting with his mind-reading journalist friend Stringer. They meet at an abandoned warehouse and Madrox accuses Stringer of being the mutant behind the Chicago mob conflict. But they get ambushed and the warehouse is set on fire. The building goes up in flames and starts collapsing. Madrox gets buried under rubble and Stringer tries to escape. At the exit, he sees someone he recognizes and is killed after pulling a gun. Stringer's killers turn out to be the same hitman going after Madrox duplicates and... Sheila DeSoto, who knew where the meeting would be because Madrox had arranged it in her presence. The hitman finds Madrox trapped under rubble and reveals that Sheila was behind the duplicate murders. Once she discovered that Madrox was a mutant, she considered him a threat since she is in fact the mutant trying to take out the Chicago mob. Madrox creates some duplicates to knock out the hitman, but it turns out the hitman is also a duplicating mutant. In the clone confusion, Madrox escapes, finding the dying reporter Stringer on his way out. With his dying breath, Stringer tells Madrox that Sheila is indeed a mutant, but more dangerous than your garden variety mutant. 
Before he can explain why, he slips away to journalist heaven. Back at Eddie Vance's house, Sheila DeSoto shows up and tells Eddie that Madrox kidnapped her, but she escaped. Madrox himself shows up to confront her and lays out her whole plan to Vance. But Sheila's fiancé freaks out and Madrox shoots him, no longer worried about doing the right thing. Sheila reveals her true self, which is like a giant scorpion praying mantis kind of hybrid monster. She's about to kill Madrox when he quickly confesses that he shot Vance with a paint gun. Eddie Vance, alive and pissed off that he was engaged to a mutant murderer, pulls a real gun and blasts Sheila into oblivion. He ponders shooting Madrox too, but decides to let the multiplying mutant go. Madrox goes back to New York, distressed but happy to be back among friends and his fledgling detective agency. Madrox was so enjoyable that I guess I'll start with the stuff that I didn't like. The art is fine, but a bit generic. It doesn't really stand out much, except for a few of the more violent scenes. This isn't to say it's bad, it's just pretty standard comic book artwork. Peter David also leaned too heavily on Guido for comic relief. Pretty much everything the guy said was a joke, and half the jokes weren't very funny. So those two criticisms aside, this was really good. It pays homage to the noir genre without leaning too heavily on any noir elements. I definitely recommend it for even if you aren't that familiar with the Marvel Universe. It's not too hard to jump in. None of these characters really needed background to explain who they were or what they were doing. And the story functioned pretty tightly with a small cast, focused on a mystery that comes up almost immediately in the book. Even though it's part of the Marvel Universe, it was a successful, self-contained story. The writing is pretty sharp, the story is well told, and there's a lot of cool stuff that happens in a few issues. If you enjoy detective or thriller stories, this one's for you. Alright, that does it for this month's episode of Batman v. Batman. If you have any comments, criticisms, or questions, harass me on Twitter at Batman v. Batman. If you enjoyed the music, check out more like it at seedmole.bandcamp.com. I'd also like to say a quick thanks to my friend Stuart, who constantly asked me what was going on with this podcast while I was on hiatus, and inspired me to get back to it instead of giving up on it. See you next month. Thanks for listening. I am pretentious. I am always right. I am Batman.